Well, good day, Fellowship family. It's great to have you here. Where in the world did this weather come from? We're in August and it's 80 degrees outside. We're enjoying that. It's a great day to be in Topeka. Hey, I uh, was doing some yard work yesterday and came in and caught the news on what was happening in Charlottesville, Virginia. And um, I was kind of shocked by that and wanted to speak into that because I, I know there's a lot of sound bites going out and and I, I want to be able to speak into this and be guided by God's word and call you to follow Jesus at a time like this. As you may realize, a different white supremacist group came in on that city as they were taking or had plans to take down that statue of Robert E. Lee in the park. And uh, on Friday night especially, very disturbing, carried torches to a different statue, Thomas Jefferson's statue, and looked more like the Ku Klux Klan, which had that group there too. And uh, really a outward expression of racism. And I wanted to speak to it because there's, there's three passages that I think should guide us as followers of Jesus. And remember, the definition of a follower of Jesus is uh, someone who follows Jesus, right? So three passages. First one, Genesis 127. When God created humanity or man... He created them in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So every human being in this world has been created in the image of God with dignity, with significance, with value, priceless, eternal people. That's how God created it. And as followers of Jesus, we're to restore that dignity to people and not be racist, not be prejudiced, not be discriminatory in our actions. The second verse, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. I mean, those are pretty long and wide arms of God. His love is deep. And he didn't just love one group of people. He, he loves the world. And because of that, we too are to love everyone. Whether they look like us, act like us, have the same color skin, have the same color background, even believe like us or practice life like us. We're to love everyone. And then that last verse uh, is Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 3. It was the verse that our service began with today, where Paul says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So here's three conclusions I have from those passages. One, there is no room... In the life of a believer of Jesus Christ and a follower of Christ for racism, discrimination, or prejudice. So church, as you respond in whatever platform you have, whether it's a friend or whether it's Facebook, (laughs) let's be clear. Let's be simple. Choose words wisely. Number two, followers of Jesus must lead at a time like this. We must lead. We shouldn't shirk back. We shouldn't just wait for everyone else to take over. We need to lead. And we need to call racism evil. It's evil. It's a plague on a society. And as I, as I share this, I just have to tell you a personal story. I was in a meeting after last summer's events across our country... Um, with Hispanic and African-American and white pastors. And I remember in that environment, one pastor who had been here 13 years, an African-American pastor, 
pointed his finger across the table for me. He says, why was I here 13 years and this is the first time we're in the same room together? And I wanted to defend myself and go, it's not my fault. You know, phone goes two ways. As soon as I thought that, he goes, I know the phone goes two ways. So he backed off a little bit. (laughs) But I started realizing, folks, my silence as a leader can sometimes come across as that I agree or that it doesn't matter or people are unimportant. And so it's important at a time like this that we're clear and that we speak. And I would tell you, out of that kind of conversation, it's moved into a friendship. And we now have a wonderful relationship because of this. And then I would also say this, we must speak out and act in ways that call evil, evil as followers of Jesus. We do. And so whatever platform, whatever relationships God has given you, I just encourage you, come alongside, support, encourage, understand, put yourself in the proximity of someone right now who's hurting or living in fear of this. And may the church rise up. May the church love this world as Jesus loved this world. And may God receive the glory. I want to pray right now for the city of Charlottesville, Virginia, and ask God to raise up his church at this defining moment. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we lift up Charlottesville, Virginia, and you know what's going on there. And Lord, I just trust all the different leaders of all the different groups. Lord, melt the hearts of hatred. Lord, change their hearts to be like yours. Lord, I pray that you would use the church in Charlottesville to rise up and stand for truth and love and grace and peace at this time. And we ask you to use us in whatever way, whatever response is from the heart of Jesus in every relationship that we have, in every platform you have given us. And it's for his glory that I pray. Amen. So this whole concept of love is all what this whole series called Awkward to Awesome has been about. It's been about how do we grow in our love for people who are difficult to love. I've been there. And, and there's a, something about me that goes, I don't want to love that person. I'd rather just go around people who like me and hang out with them. But if love is going to grow in us, we have to be willing to confront the chaos and the conflict. And Paul prayed a prayer for the church in Philippi. And I think it's a really good prayer. It's one that I've been praying for us as a church family. In Philippians chapter 1, beginning with verse 9 and, and 10, it says this. He says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That the central to that prayer is that their love would abound. In other words, just be full in their lives. They'd be so full that would, it would overflow into the lives around them. That your love would abound more and more. Brian last week talked to us about before we go shining the spotlight in someone else's life, really looking, need to look at ourselves in the mirror because we do add to awkward relationships. We add to the problem. And it's good to always start there rather than saying it's your fault until you change. I'm not going to change. And, and that's what I want to talk to you about because relationships have to be filled with grace. They must be filled with grace. And, and therefore, one of the enemies of relationships are performance-based relationships. And perform, performance-based relationships says, when you do this, I'll do that. 
You do my part, your part, I'll do my part. You, it's, it's based on what you're doing. And it leaves you with the three W's of relationship. Number one, leaves you waiting for the per- person, the other person to act. Especially when you're at odds. When you're at conflict with someone, you're going, I'm not going to do anything until they come back to me. They hurt me. They, I'm not doing one thing until they say they're sorry. Then maybe I'll forgive them if they do it the way I want them to. So we're always, we're always waiting for them. We're always worrying also. I don't know if you've been in a performance-based relationship. You're always wondering, am I good enough? Did I do enough? Am I doing, am I meeting your expectations? And then that last W, you're withholding. You're withholding love to punish them or to manipulate or control them. And folks, here's what it comes down to in, in, in the whole picture of it is, is we're all doing this. We're all doing this. And we all need to move from performance to grace. Before I move to grace, let me just ask you to think about your own life. Are you doing this? A lot, of, a lot of us are doing it without really noticing it. And I had to take a, a good look in the mirror this week as I was preparing for this and reading the passages of Scripture that guide me in this. But here's what it comes down to. When I take my eyes off of Jesus and I wander away, I'm always going back to performance. I do it with my marriage. <laughs> when I don't start my day with Jesus, I look at my wife and go, what can you do for me today? And when she doesn't do what I want her to do, look out. I mean, I all withhold love. She go, what's wrong? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> no, really, what's wrong? Nothing. You know, you think I, I grow up from 10 years old. But performance-based relationships just creep their way in. With my kids, I, I'd like to say that I, I love them unconditionally and everything. But it's, most of the times in the week, I'm tempted to love them based on their athletic performance. I mean, did you win? How'd you do in that? Or, or how are your academics? How's school? Especially as school starting up. What's your GPA? You know, what's the ACT score? Will we get the scholarship? You know, uh, their attitude. Don't walk into this house with this attitude. You know, it's based on their performance. But how many of us are in sales? And how many evil thoughts do we have when someone doesn't buy our product? Or they go to the competitor we could take that, especially for business owners. We hate, you know, we, that's a relational, personal vendetta against us, right? We change our behavior based on how they perform with us. Folks, Jesus is calling us to follow him. Jesus is looking to us to be people who reflect his grace. Not just people who receive his grace, but people who live and give his grace. Our world is looking For people who say they've received grace from God to give grace to them. You know what I hear about people who are outside of faith or a faith perspective? Christians are hypocrites. I kind of like Jesus, but I don't like his followers. Our relationships are crying out for grace. Especially the awkward ones. What do they need the most? They need grace. And I would even say my heart and your heart are longing to be loved and to love without any strings attached. Not based on our relationships, just because we we choose to love unconditionally.
So I think scripture can guide us in this. And I want to point your, uh, your eyes to the word of God right now. And look with me in Matthew chapter 20 as Jesus guides us in this. This is a story that Jesus tells, a parable that has a principle, a transforming principle of God's grace. And it's in Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. It's the only place in the Gospels this is, this is mentioned. Matthew includes it in his story about Jesus. But I think it's fascinating. It shows us some incredible uh, principles, too, that I want to really call out about God's grace. That if we could have inform us and we practice this, it might just transform us. Matter of fact, it will transform us. So let's take a look at this story. I'll explain it as we go along. But Jesus starts and says this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Let's just pause there. Um, Jesus is kind of telling us whenever he starts doing the lingo of the kingdom of heaven is like. Remember, where did Jesus come from? He came from heaven. So he knows what heaven is like, and he uses a parable to give a larger principle of what, what heaven is, ha- what's happening in heaven. He says, in the economy of heaven, this is, this is a story that shows you something about it. And, and what Jesus calls us to do is live and reflect not just the person of Jesus, but the place of Jesus, heaven. And so he says, the master of a house, who's that? That's God, who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Who are those laborers? Anyone. Who trusts and follows Jesus Christ is that. So we're all laborers. And look what he says there. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them out into his vineyard. A denarius in present day numbers would probably be about $100 a day. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because some of you make more. But most of us would work for $100 a day. And that's what they agreed to. By the way, this was the first hour of the day. The first hour of the day in the Jewish day was sunrise. Sunrise was in our day today, six in the morning. So consider this. They got, they got invited into, they went out to work at six in the morning. And then he says, and going out about the third hour. So add three to six students and we get nine a.m., right? Okay, after four services, I should get this, right? He saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out about the sixth hour, six plus six would be 12 or noon. And the ninth hour, that would be 3 p.m., he did the same. And look at verse six. And about the 11th hour, that would be 4 p.m., He went out and found others standing, or maybe 5 p.m. We'll go with 5 p.m. Sorry about this. He went out and he found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. It's very intentional. In other words, people who showed up, With one hour to go, one hour of work, he put them first. Now, if you were kind of, you didn't want anyone to know what you were doing, you'd pay them last, okay? Because you agreed to a denarius a day for the people who started in the day. So so when they were, those who were hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received, here it is, bump, bump, bump. What did they receive? Look at that. It says a denarius. (gasps) Everyone's shocked. Everyone's shocked. Now, when those hired first came, they thought well, they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house. 
saying, These last work only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Two principles I never want you to forget about God's grace. Number one, God's grace is surprising. Think about what happens here. As those who were, who started first thing in the morning, those who started with an hour to go, they all got the same thing. Who's surprised? Both. <laughs> but not always good thoughts, right? Those who were surprised in a good sense were those who worked one hour for a hundred bucks. I'll work an hour for a hundred bucks. Any of us would. That's worth it. That's a good pay. Who thinks they got cheated? They were surprised in the negative way. Those who worked the whole day. God's grace. God's grace. One thing we need to know about God's grace. It's unfair. And it's generous. Here's my question. Aren't you thankful that God is unfair with his love? Yes. That's the answer. Slow pitch in church. Slow pitch. Say yes. Say yes. Because if we, if we got what we deserved, we'd all be in hell. We would. So God is not fair. Are you okay with that? I know in this United States of America, we go, I put in a good work. I get a good pay. It's, everyone needs to be fair. Thank God. He's not fair with you with his love. Because if we got what we deserved, we'd all be in hell. And that is something that our relationships need to be transformed with. You need to be unfair with grace. In other words, grace is God's undeserved love. And it is generous. And so we're to be generous, just as those who have received his grace, which I always do whenever I sin. God, thank you for forgiving me. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for my sins. That's a common part of my faith expression to God, especially when I'm confessing sin. And I am so thankful he doesn't punish me. I think it's easy as a follower of Jesus when something goes bad, you go, what did I do to deserve this? Be thankful. Be thankful God doesn't operate that way. Because if he wanted to, he could cough. Sorry, I just spit on you. He could clear his throat. And all of humanity would be wiped out. But he has given us grace. It's unfair. It's generous. When you give grace to someone, when you receive grace from someone, it's good to go, thanks for being unfair. Thanks for giving your love in an unfair way. That's going to surprise the world around you when you love someone who doesn't deserve it. That's going to move you to initiate, not wait, with love, with forgiveness, with reconciliation. God's grace is surprising. But as it is surprising, it's also sovereign. And here's what I mean about that. As the master house says, isn't it my choice? It's that God chose to love us. It's his sovereign choice. And we give him the right when we submit to him and go under his authority. We say, you can choose. You can choose to give me love and you can choose to use me 
to give love to others. And so in order for you to give grace, it has to be your choice. And, and that's where grace ought to liberate you. You're not just the same gerbil or going around in the wheel. You do this to me, I'll do that to you. You mess with me, I'll get revenge. And the whole cycle that is plaguing society after society, nation after nation, man against man, it doesn't have to repeat itself in you. It can be a choice in us. And it has to be a compassionate and just choice. That's exactly how God worked with us. You see, the reality is God is compassionate with us, but he's also just with us. In other words, someone had to pay for your sin. God didn't just overlook because he's holy and sin is an affront to his character and his way. And so what God did is he saw us as sinners and he took compassion on us. Unlike all the other major religious systems of the world, our God said, I take compassion and I will do for you what you can't do for yourself. And I will give you my grace. All the other major religious systems say, do this, you're messed up, but do this and go to church, give in the offering and be a good person. And someday, who knows when, you're always wondering... Our God says, I will send my only son to this world who will live perfectly for you, who will die finally for you, and who was raised on the third day to defeat the power of sin and death in your life. It was God's sovereign choice. Aren't you glad that he chose us to do this? And it's not based on how we look or the color of our skin or whether or not we've been good or bad. It's based on who he is. A compassionate and just God. And Jesus, when he lived and died and rose again for us, was the one who was just, but also the justifier of the ungodly. And therefore, everything we have with God is grace. Everything we have with God is because of his choice to give us grace. So if you're a follower of Jesus, that's our pattern. That's our pattern. If you're here and you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus, I don't expect you to live like this. But if you are a follower of Jesus, this is the word of God. It's true. It's pure. It's right. It is good. And it liberates our souls from, for, for love to just abound more and more. It liberates our relationships. It liberates this world when we practice grace. So let's talk about three practices that I think are really helpful for us to work through as we think about not only receiving, but living and giving God's grace. And they're found in a passage that I memorized this summer as I had a little bit of time uh, away in July. I uh, memorized some key verses that um, I just, this is my favorite passage in the whole Bible right now. And it's found in Ephesians chapter 2. These 10 verses just kind of explain the whole nature of God's grace. And this is what Paul says. He says, you were dead in their trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince, the power, the air, the spirit, which is now at work in sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's where we started with God. That's where we start. I know it's easy for us to go, oh, people are basically good. 
And given up the right choices, everyone will make the right... I'm sorry. Sorry, that, that's not a biblical framework. Folks, we are messed up. And we can look normal like the people around us, but we look far different than godly. And so, from the lens of Scripture, the Word tells us we're worse off than we think. But verse 4 tells us what God did. It says, that's where we once were, but God. Love those two words. But God. That's who you once were, but that didn't change God or his love for you or his grace for you. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we wanted nothing to do with him, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. And we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pause. This is the story. And the story of God's grace in our lives moves us to three things. Three things to practice. And the first one is a new thought. A new thought. We're far worse than we think, but we're far more loved than we can imagine. You see, God loved us almost to be trophies of his grace that he could display to us and the rest of the world. I love this person. And if you're here and you're humble, you realize you fall far short of perfection, but Jesus loved you. And he gave his son for you, who lived, died, and rose again for you. And the thought is, the thought is everything you have with God is because he sovereignly, And unfairly gave you his love. We need to be informed by grace. What is one of the greatest things your life needs every day? God's grace. How do I need to view other people? God's grace. What does this broken, messed up relationship need? God's grace. Be informed with God's grace. And the reality of who you are. And what God did to redeem you. To bring you back. Secondly, we need a new attitude. And what I mean by a new attitude is I'm thinking about an attitude that's conformed to grace. Here's what an attitude is. If you want a definition of an attitude. The attitude that I work off of or the definition for an attitude that I work off is a judgment about yourself that you use to judge other people. So if I view myself as a really good guy who God deserves, I start judging everyone around me based off of me and how I'm doing and how bad you're doing. So if I go to church every week and you don't, I go, oh, I haven't seen you in a while. In other words, I'm a better person than you are. Or if I give in the offering and you don't because I don't see that you give online, I go, huh, look at that. That's the problem with this generation today. They don't give when in reality they texted five times what you gave. That's that that picture. It's that judgment about yourself that I am good, I am loving, I am right, and they're wrong. And that new attitude has to be, we have to treat people the way we've been treated. We have to treat people better than they deserve. 
And we have to liberate our judgment and our attitudes away from performance-based relationships and into grace-filled relationships. The reality is, none of us are here because we leveled up to a measure of performance that deserves to be here. None of us are here. We're not here because we got it all, all together. I, I, frankly, I'm th- I come here because I'm messed up. I'm so messed up, i got to preach to myself four times on a weekend to get this message. <laughs> and after four times, God continues to melt my heart. We need a new attitude. But we also need a, not only a new thought and a new attitude, we need a new action. In other words, God is calling us not just to know this and not to just agree with this and make a faith statement. Yes, everything I have is because of God's... No, he's calling us to live his grace, to be people who experience grace by giving it to people who need it. And especially if you're in an awkward relationship, what do they need? They need grace more than anything. The relationship that you process and over-process that you think the worst about and call yourself a victim and then the victim about, the, the, the villain about, you, with that needs grace. It needs a new action so that we're transformed by grace. So this week, August 15th, I celebrate being married 25 years to the same woman. <laughs> Yes, thank you. But I'll tell you this. If you go, Joe, what's your marriage secrets? How did you stay married for 25 years? Here's my answer. I married a woman who gave grace. I did. Because one thing marriage exposes is um, personal flaws and selfishness. You want to you be selfish, don't get married. Don't get married. That will be a mirror in your face every day. You want to be selfish? Don't have kids. (laughs) I mean, it messes with you when you try to love someone else. And there have been many times where my wife stepped into my life and loved me when I did not deserve it. If I was basing my, if she based her love on me, for me on the 50-50 model, you do your things and then I'll do my thing. I mean, we would be gone a, a long time ago. There were key times in our relationships where she melted melted my heart by forgiving me and loving me when I've been difficult to love. And I look forward to the next 25 years of maybe me showing her I can be a man of grace too. Folks, there's only one way to be transformed by grace, and that's to give grace. Give grace. I'm in the Bible every morning. I pray every morning. But I will not transform with grace if I withhold it from someone. If I get revenge, if I vent about someone and try to get even with them, or I confront them and let them have it, and then go, but I'll forgive you, you know. If if only when I give God's grace, no strings attached, that's how I grow. And I would say my wife has been most instrumental in me growing in grace because she gives grace to me. I had one guy come, after, come up to me after the service. He goes, hey, does, does grace, you know, apply to drivers next to you? I said, yes, <laughs> yes. And Topeka Roads, especially 10th and Wanamaker. Amen? Yeah. So we've got to be people 
Because here's the deal. Jesus has commissioned us to make him greater. And for his love to abound more and more in our lives. And and if Jesus is gone, that ought to be enough, right? Yes, I'll do that. Because out of obedience, we're his, we're his children. We shouldn't have to have a hundred reasons why grace is superior to revenge. No. Jesus said it. I trust Jesus. I'll believe him. But our world is looking too. And your relationships are crying out for it. And your soul and your heart are longing to love and to be loved unconditionally. No strings attached. Only by grace. And we have an opportunity. Think about that one person right now. I know if you have 10 of them, you really need to pray about it. But, but one, that one person who's difficult, who you're at odds with, who's hurt you, and in your mind deserves revenge or withholding of love. And just go, go, aren't you thankful God is unfair with you? So be unfair with them. Love them. They don't deserve it. I'm not denying the truth. But you make a sovereign choice under the authority of Jesus Christ. I will love them. I will forgive them. Before you even talk, set them free of revenge and rage, of venting, of a Facebook post. Set them free. Surprise them with love. Surprise yourself with God's immeasurable riches in your life of his grace and kindness towards you in Christ. So here's... A moment like this can be inspiring to you. But I think what we need is, is more of a process, a, a direction that could start a movement. And so what I want to call you into is something called Rooted. You've heard about this if you've come here and if you're new to it. Rooted is a discipleship experience that we're going to be launching this fall. It's a 10-week experience. And if, if I could, you could just summarize it. It's going to train us all as a church family To be people who live by God's grace. Not only receiving it and living it, but giving it. And I think our church here has a defining moment for us. To live with God's grace. And to not just have a moment of God's grace, but to build a movement of God's grace. And I know some of you have never been in a small group. I'm just going to say, get over your hesitation and get into a small group. Because what God wants to do, and I think if you're available to God over these 10 weeks... He will transform you with grace. If you're open to it. And I know you got a lot of things. School is starting this weekend. Or not, not this weekend, this week. And you're, you're going, whoa, I've got this and this and this. And your calendar is filling up. There are a lot of good things in this world to do. But this is a great moment for us. That I think should have a priority in our lives. And as you're part of a church family, sometimes families experience and get more when we do it together. So connect into a small group and go through the rooted experience and God will transform you in his grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I look around this room and I see all the potential of what could happen if grace was leading and basing our relationships. We'd not only be liberated from performance, but we would be liberated from less and less of ourselves and more and more of you. And so we want to abound in your love. And Lord, I just pray for all the relationships represented in this room. You know exactly what's going on there. And the need is, just from your word and from our hearts, the need is more of your grace. So would you source us and supply us with your grace? 
And may we listen to your Holy Spirit to give it and to be generous with it, to be unfair with it, to surprise this world by a sovereign choice under the authority of Jesus to compassionately give grace to those around us. It's in the name of Jesus and for his glory that we pray. Amen.